0: My dad died. I miss my friends because of... I don't know how to tell my friends that. I want to help my friends. I don't know how.
1: The pandemic has left me feeling very lonely.
0: How can I best
1: support students in my class? The morning meeting is meant to be a place to let you know that you are not alone. We can get through this together. So join us. Listen, learn, share your stories. This is The Morning Meeting. Good morning, everyone. I am Mandy Zucker, the host of this podcast. On April 16th, 2009, Kim Hamer watched her 44-year-old husband take his last breath. Their children were 12, 9, and 7 at the time. While her husband had cancer and after he died, they were amazed and humbled by the creative and thoughtful ways that their family and friends, co-workers supported them. Kim started calling these actions acts of love. Wanting to show others how simple and impactful acts of love are, Kim wrote a book called 100 Acts of Love, A Girlfriend's Guide to Loving Your Friend Through Cancer or Loss and launched 100actsoflove.com. Kim helps companies and individuals act with confidence when cancer strikes. She's a business owner, a professional speaker, and a blogger who lives in L.A., where she tries not to bother her relatively well-behaved college-aged children. I'm really excited to have her on the show. Thank you for joining us. So welcome, Kim. Thank you so much for coming on the morning meeting. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I am thrilled to have you. You have no idea. Um, (laughs) We've only recently met, but I feel so connected to you. And I just, I love your vibe and your whole energy. And I'm really excited to have you on the show. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about you and why I asked you to be on the show?
0: Sure. So, um on April 16th, 2000, in 2009 at one sixteen a.m., I watched my 44-year-old husband take his last breath. And um he had died from his second entanglement with cancer. And as I'm sure your audience knows, it was a really it was just it was A really hard time. Um, And what I noticed when my husband was, when my husband had cancer, he had it twice. And after he died, was there were so many people who were able to step in and do these little helpful things for us. And there were so many others who didn't know what to do or what to say. Um, I think the thing that people forget about with cancer or grief or any type of kind of big life hiccup is you have friends who step in. And oftentimes it's not necessarily the ones you think are going to step in. Yep. And then you have those friends who you think are going to step in, they step out. Yep. Um, so it was, you know, I realized some of those friends stepped out because they didn't know what to say or what to do. So a couple of years after my husband died, I started writing a book um, that I finished and it's called 100 acts of love, a girlfriend's guide to loving your friend through cancer or loss. You can buy it on my website or on Amazon mm-hmm. and it, it it's a hundred different ways, a hundred different things you can do to support a friend or a family member going through any type of crisis. And I wrote it in a way that I wanted people to be able to just kind of get a quick hit, right? Because oftentimes, yeah, you know, we we want to do something, we want to take some type of action, and we just don't know what that is. Yeah. So so you know, it's like I, I, one of my favorite tips is uh, you know fill up the car with gas. Mm. Like it's such a simple action, and when someone is in crisis. Get, remembering that you're almost out of gas is a whole different ballgame. But then getting to the gas station, which prior seems like such an easy task to do, is no longer easy to do. So, like, so it's simple things like that. It's um, you know, pay for camp if they have kids, register register their kids for camp. Mm-hmm. So the book is full of all these little tips um, and ideas of really simple kind of quick touches in. I love you. I care about you. Let me register your kids for camp and let me take care of the price if you can do it. Mm -hmm. And I'll do that for you. And, and, and it's, it's all those little things that helped propel my kids and myself forward and through, you know, I don't ever think I'm through the grief, but forward and through the most intense part of the
1: grief. You know what I love about that is that so many people talk about like, you can't fix grief and, You know, I know I walk around telling everybody that, like, you can't advise through it. You can't tell people what to do. But I always say there are things that you can do. So many of us, myself included, we want to do something, right? And when you think about grief, like, I can't take your pain away. And I think that's the the piece that I work on so much with people is trying to, you know, help them to not try to take the pain away. But there are other things that you can do. You can bring food. You can fill the car up with gas. You can carpool the kids. There are so many things that you know people need after a loss. And we can be helpful in that way.
0: And I think, you know, I always like to talk about origin stories. Like our origin story of wanting to fix it is this is America, damn it. Mm -hmm. You know? And so we are built on, this is a can do society, right? We believe in that you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps and there's a whole nother issue is even if you have bootstraps, we won't go there. But, you know, so we believe that, 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 that is an opportunity that everyone can do this. And so we fix things we make things better we we improve things we we get out and do it we we you know we we tell fear to go screw itself and we just go do those things and so that's our country's origin story yeah and when we have somebody something with death or with cancer or with loss or with grief we feel the need to fix it and anything less than fixing it doesn't feel like it's enough And I think that's the battle that many people have is sure. I can fill your car with gas, but what else? Like, I want to, I want to, I want to, and I'm, you know, I think you're right. It's just remembering that that simple little task that you did, even though it doesn't feel like you did anything, you didn't accomplish something. There was no goal line to cross. That little act that you did, did do something. It does have an effect. You know, love can't be forced or put into a box and, um, you know, just kind of strangled, love has to kind of flow. And when you commit an act of love, that's the flow. And that's oftentimes that's good enough. That's ex- usually exactly what that
1: person needs. Yep. I love that. I'm thinking about, I don't know why it's reminding me of this, but my dad died almost 18 years ago. And probably about six months later, I remember inviting a group of people over, some of whom had been my friends for a long time and others who just really stepped up and, you know, did these really caring things. Some of it was actual acts and others were, you know, sitting with me and letting me just cry and whatever. And I just felt this intense need to like thank them for, you know, doing that for me. I don't think I would have gotten through the first six months without that kind of support. Um, And I love that, you know, people are always looking for those things and that's exactly what your book provides for people that are really... You know, having a hard time figuring out like what can I do There's right. tons of stuff to do,
0: yeah, exactly, and I think you know it's 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 the joke is I will I still calling people, my husband um has been dead for eleven years, and I'm still calling people thinking them mm-hmm. because I also realize that in the in the intense grief i I didn't remember them doing things, and so sometimes something will pop into my mind, and I'm like, oh they did that for me. And then there's this beautiful flood of, I don't know what chemical is dopamine, endorphin, whatever it is. There's this feeling of great amount of love and appreciation for them. And, you know, we want so badly to love others, right? In our community, we want to help them. We want to support them. We want to show them how much they mean to us. And I think that we, we, we forget that um, sometimes when they don't show it back, when they don't say thank you back or they don't say thank you in the most heartfelt way, how much it means, you know? Um, you know, death, death is death is a hard thing, but the beautiful thing about it is, is you get to remember the person with love and kindness and, and a sense of gratitude. Like, gosh, I can't believe they stepped up for me
1: that way. That was so sweet. And it makes
0: you feel more valued as a person.
1: I really wanted to talk to you today about um, your children. Um, and your experience as the mom, you know, the good and the bad and the ugly, really. Um, I'm sure that you did some amazing things with your kids when you were going through the illness as well as after the death. And there's probably things that you wish you could do over. And I would love to talk a little bit about that for people that maybe are going through it right now. Um, and are wondering like, what can, what should I be doing? What could I be doing? Um, your kids were fairly young when their dad died, right? Yeah, yeah, they were
0: uh 129 and 7. So, when my husband was first diagnosed with cancer, this, are, this is a I think this is a funny story. My husband and I decided we were going to wait till we we found out about the diagnosis on a Friday and of course we had all these kid things going on over the weekend. So we decided we would wait to tell them till Sunday. And Sunday night we sit them down to our family meeting which we usually have on Sunday nights anyway. And um my husband and I are sitting on the couch, our our youngest, who is four at the time, is sitting in between us. My daughter is next to my husband. And our son has turned around this big green chair that we've had. So and he's nine. And so he's got his arms, you know, folded over the back of the chair and his his head resting on his on the arms. Right. And so my husband has said that he's going, he's we've decided my husband decided he wants to tell them. So he says, I have cancer. And then he starts to cry. And the kids start to cry. You know, one by one, it was like this chain effect. All three of them cry. I start to cry. We're all crying. And then my oldest, he stops crying. He lifts his head up. His eyes get really big. And you can see he's forming a question in his head. And he goes, but what's cancer? And we realized, you know, there's all this talk about making sure that That you know you do a you're you're age appropriate and look there's just and there's there's look like most of big things in life there's no guidebook we were very honest with them and we you know we told them all about cancer but we never mentioned death and we didn't do it because we didn't want to mention death we did it for two reasons one because we didn't think Art was going to die he was he was in his 40s Mm -hmm. this man wasn't going to die he was going to beat the cancer because that's what he was going to do. And the other thing is it didn't occur to us that they didn't know that cancer can cause death, just like it didn't occur to us that they didn't know what cancer was because right. they had no experience with cancer. No one in our lives had cancer. So they didn't know what it was.
1: Right.
0: So, you know, um, if I could go back, would I talk about death to them? Probably not. Okay. I, I have to say that. I don't think I would. Um, but when my husband did die, um, so it was a kind of a very quick. Ending. Um, he was hospitalized on a Friday. He wasn't doing really well. I went up on a Sunday. He slipped into a coma on a Monday, and um, and I remember Sunday night we were in the hospital, um, and this doctor came in who wasn't our regular doctor and said, "What do you want me to do if he codes?" And I was like, "What? What do you mean code? Like I just, I, I you know I have a medical background, uh, you know, and I know what code is, but I couldn't." I couldn't make the connection between coding and my husband, Your
1: husband. Right.
0: And, um, finally he said, what do you want me to do if his heart stops? And by the grace of God or Allah or whatever it is you believe in, uh, my own brain, I said, you need to keep them alive so the kids can say goodbye. And I think that that was a really important piece for my kids, um, is to have, is to be able to have that conversation with them and to say, and I made sure I didn't use the word sleep. Or you know he's really sick and he's going to die now, like i we I made sure you know, Daddy is going to die, mm-hmm. and he's going to die this week. That's what the doctor told me, and you know he's he's he he cannot his body can't keep fighting this way. The cancer is just taking over, and I tried not to use the word strong either. I was really conscious about my language um and I gave each of the kids the opportunity to go into the room and to talk to their unconscious father. Um, and to say goodbye, mm-hmm. and each of them did it in their own way. Um, my seven year old had the hardest time with it because you know he 's seven, and this whole concept of death is barely permanent is you know maybe has just become permanent in him. Right. Um, so I think that was that was probably one of my proudest moments of being able to have the wherewithal in that moment to be able to do it. Um, but I would tell you it the journey. I I didn't have the space, the mental capacity to really focus on my kids after my husband died. Mm. And I always hesitate saying that because you know, the the ideal mom that we put out there is the mother who puts everything and everyone in front of herself and sacrifices herself. You know, she'll be the, you know, if my son needs to reach those cookies, I will get on the floor and you can lie on me. So you know, stand on me so you can right. get those cookies, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's exactly the opposite of what happened. I was I had a really hard time functioning. Um my husband was a disciplinarian so all discipline in our house went to pot. Mm-hmm. Um, the kids were up 11, 12 at night and I would getting them up for school the next morning. Um, you know, it was, I just, I just didn't have, I mean, I wanted to say I didn't care, but that's not true. I just did I was having, I was struggling with just functioning day in and day out. Yeah. Um so you know, it was it was a really hard time. And then when I started to feel a little bit better, my my children, we were all in support group. Um I'm very grateful that we live in LA where there are a lot of parents, unfortunately, you know, the population size that we can have these kind of groups. And so my children were all in a support group and it was about nine months in, after my husband died, I'm feeling better and more like, I'm just having better days. I can go a few days without, without you know crying. Um, one of the support group leaders pulled me aside and said, we need to talk about Ezra, who was my youngest at the time. And he's seven and a half at that point. And he said, we think that he needs extra support. He's talking about killing himself. And I laughed. Because I was like, there's no way a seven-year-old is talking about suicide. Like, just no way. And she's like, no, we're really serious. You need to get him some help. Because, you know, it's not unusual for a child, especially a young child, to say, I want to die so I can be with daddy. Or I want to die because because that's perfect. That's the, that's their understanding, right? Yeah, right. I want to um, go to heaven, too. Exactly. Right. Exactly. If that's where he is. That's where I want to go. And then I want to come back. Yeah. Right? Um, and so that's not unusual. But these guys were trained, and they were seeing things in the way that Ezra was talking and the way that he was behaving in this group that really kind of raised a lot of red flags for them. So um, that really, you know, that's when. And, and they say it's common too when the parent is starting to feel better, like like they're getting their feet under. The kids start to fall apart. Sure, um, and it makes you know I think we underestimate our children just because they don't have the language to express themselves. And that we don't give we all don't often give them the space to express themselves doesn't mean that they don't have those feelings. Absolutely. And so, you know, all my kids were holding themselves together, were trying to manage their lives until their mother was able to help them and come back. Mm-hmm. And, and as I started to come back, that's when things started to fall apart with, with my children. Um, so, um, I think, you know, I, that was, that was a trying time. It was, and it was also a time where I felt some guilt because I began to think like, gosh, maybe I should have been, maybe I could have pulled through the grief faster. Maybe I, maybe I was too self-indulgent, you know, all these kind of crazy thinking, crazy mom thing thoughts that I was having right. Um, I was too self-indulgent. I should have just gotten up and just done it. I should have, you know, been more forceful about getting the kids to bed on time. And um, so it was just this mix of a lot of emotions at that time. And then moving forward, you know, the thing that the one thing that the therapist, um, a, a child psychologist told me in the beginning was that kids experience grief very differently than adults. Mm-hmm. And when uh, when, it, when I told this your audience that my husband died, if you're an adult, you're, you're, you, you went through in your head subconsciously all the things my husband was going to miss, right? So you went through the graduations, the college and high school graduations, the weddings, you know, the first jobs, the first children. Well, kids don't know those big monuments are coming, right? right? And so when they get to those, and this is why your work is so amazing and what you do, when they get to those transition periods, they tend to experience grief
1: a hard, hard, like it just happened. Right. All over Years ago. Yep, yeah. Yep. Because they're also sort of growing like emotionally and cognitively and starting to understand death differently when you're four and then when you're 15. Exactly. So you re grieve in every developmental stage. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you
0: know, I had to, you know, my son called me hysterically crying. He wanted to leave the college he was at and he called me hysterically crying. And I'm thinking, who's dead, you know, what happened. And he said, I just miss daddy. I wish daddy were he was here to talk to me about what, what other colleges I should be choosing, mm. you know? And so it just, and it hit him hard. You know, yeah. he was down for a couple of days.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, can I and, ask, were you surprised sure. by that? Like were, you know, I don't know if your kids had these sort of like waves of grief, but oftentimes what I've you know, what I've seen is that, you know, when when children have a death of a parent as a young child, like your kids were, and then, you know, for them, six, seven, eight years is a really long time. So they don't go to college until like double their life, right? right, right. Um, and you think like, how can that still be like a thing for them? Like maybe, you know, the death of their father isn't going to really affect them at that point. So were you surprised that, he had this big grief reaction when he got to college. I'm always surprised. Really? I mean, you know, it's 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 a
0: moment that they call, and and the minute they tell me what it is, I go, of course. Right. But you know, I think it's you know, like, look, I, I'm you know, my my favorite subject as all, I hope is all humans is me. You know, <laughs> so. it's my so, favorite subject too. Exactly. You see what I mean? So <laughs> so so you know, I'm in my world. And I'm, you know, thinking about dating and thinking about what the kids would think about this guy. You know, that's where I, that's where my head is at. And then this kid calls me up and is like, I miss daddy. And I'm, and it's like this, I mean, I know I heard if I just snap, clap my hands, you know, it's like this, it snaps you back to the moment of like, right. These kids aren't done missing him. And, and, and not that I don't want to if you haven't experienced grief and you're listening to this, you're not done missing anybody. So please don't take that. Don't take that as a takeaway from this, (laughs) Um, but there, you know, I don't miss my husband. You know, I still have these moments of intense grief where, you know, I, it feels like it happened yesterday or, or last week, but they're far, they're getting further and further apart. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, when my kids come to me, it is, it's almost like a, I almost like a, you know, slap my head, like, wow, I should have had a V8 type of thing, (laughs) you know, because it is, it's often surprising and it's really painful. It's sometimes hard for me to go there with them because it is, you know, I remember them coming to me when they were young and crying and thinking, you know, gosh, damn it. The one thing I want to do as a mother, the one thing I want to do as a mother is bring him back for them. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I remember telling God, like, look, I will divorce him. I will do like, if you want me to like not have him in my life, I will do that just so that these kids can have their father. Yep. Um, and you you can't bring it back. And so it's painful. It's really hard because it just brings me back to that moment where I have to do what people did for me and that is sit Mm -hmm. in the grief with them not try to fix it not try to tell them stories about how how daddy would have done x y and z or you know i i you know my my promise to myself is to really let my children grief grieve Mm -hmm. and it is
1: seriously top five hardest things i've ever done i'm sure this episode is brought to you by inner harbor providing grief support to students and those that support them. Find us at www.inner-harbor.org. Were you, did you think about that, like, before they went to college that, um, like, maybe we should have a talk about, like, this is going to be difficult, it might bring up feelings, or, or were you not sort of in that space at that time? Oh, Mandy, if only I knew you before that, I would have had that conversation. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad that you didn't. I mean, not that I'm glad that you didn't, but I'm glad to normalize the fact that so many yes. people aren't thinking about that.
0: Well, you know, I had a conversation with my daughter after I talked to you because she's she's really, she was struggling at school, at college. And I said, you know, sweetie, I talked to this woman and she said that transitions can bring up, you know, death. And she's like, well, duh, mom. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> So clearly, I was late to the party. Um, no, I didn't think about it. And again, I think I didn't think about it because I was in the adult frame of mind of what death and loss is. I wasn't thinking about it from the frame of mind of a seventeen year old not knowing what's coming, not knowing how hard these transitions are going to be. Um something we did, something I did talk to the kids about is they switched schools. Um, so all my children were lucky enough to be in these schools that were, outrageously supportive. I Mm. mean, just, they enveloped my children and just kind of like, just held them through this process, especially in that first year. It was just amazing. And then they had to switch schools. And so the question was, do you want me to call the school and tell them, tell your teachers? And with the exception, most times they all did. And then they they got to high school and they said, no, we don't want you talking to our teachers. Um, So the kids Wanted to be as normal as possible as all you know. I remember not wanting to you know talk about what was happening in my house to my friends because I want to normalize it, right? I, I I'm scared everyone else is everyone else lives a perfect life, um, and so I think that that caused you know having those conversations with them would have been good, and they probably would have brushed me off. like, mom, it's no big deal. Like, you're just making this, it's not all about, I've heard this before. It's not all about daddy, you know? Um, um, So they probably would have brushed me off, but I'm, but I think that they would have been able to um, come back to that conversation with me. And I have talked to all of them. My oldest is now getting ready to graduate nursing school. And so I did say, Hey, you know, I know that you're getting ready to graduate nursing school and you're, you know, you're going to be moving to a whole new state and, you know, trying to find a job, you know, have you thought about just the emotions that, that are going to come up, you know, transition is transition and it's good and it's bad and it feels hard. And he, and he basically said, you know, mom, I don't want to talk about this right now, but the conversation was started and it's there. And when he wants to talk about it, he can.
1: Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things that sounds like you did really well. Um, you also told me another story about, um, Maybe you can share it about how you said something about your husband, and the kids kind of were like, "Yeah, we <laughs> listen to your stories because you like to share them." But my point is just that I think you have done a really good job of opening the door. I always say all we could do is open the door for the kids. They get to choose whether or not they're going to walk in, but mm-hmm. allowing them to you know, to to bring up your husband, Um, that is something that you have done throughout their lives by by talking about him. So they know that you're a person that they can come to if they have big feelings. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that is very conscious.
0: You know, as a parent, look, I would love to say that I I was not a helicopter parent, but I was a helicopter parent emotionally. Mm -hmm. I was like, do you, want to talk? do you 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 want to talk? And you, do you want to go for a ride? Do you want to talk? Do you want to talk? Do you, so, you know, everything else, they could do whatever they wanted, but right. like I was on them emotionally and I realized I needed to back the heck off mm-hmm. because it wasn't every time I asked them if they wanted to talk, I wasn't giving them the space to come to me, you know, and right. also teenagers yeah. are obstinate to like, you, you're if you're going to ask me 15 times, then there's no way in hell I'm coming to you yeah. that one time that I really need to talk to you because then you're right and I'm wrong and mm-hmm. I don't want to deal with that. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, in the beginning I would tell stories, I would tell stories about my husband because I wanted them to know, you know, your dad would have done this or your dad, you know, and when we were taking a, a college tour with my oldest, we were all in the car and we were driving, we were in Syracuse, up in Syracuse, New York, and I was telling them the story. And I realized in my head, you know, the kids have never, ever like reacted to any of the stories I've shared. So my oldest is in the front sheet and the other two are in the back. And I say to, I look over to him and I said, do you even like to hear stories about your father? And you see him, my oldest kind of glance in the back and look to the child who's sitting behind me. And then out of the corner of my eye, I see the child who's sitting behind my son glance to the other one who's sitting behind me. And it was like, almost like my oldest was anointed to, to share the information with mom because they clearly have discussed this. Right. <laughs> and, and my oldest turns to me and says, well, you know, mom, we think it helps you more than it helps us. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, um, I think, you know, I think the thing that I'm, I'm most happy with is just kind of like I, the, the death of my husband has really caused us to become a really tight knit community. We're this really tight knit unit in a way that we weren't before when my, before we were just a family, right. Um, So, but part of that is part of that, a lot of that comes from my saying to them, I messed up, you know, and for them seeing my, my vulnerabilities. I remember, um, we had just moved. So it was a transition for me. We had moved from the house that we were living in when Art, when Art and I were married and, and, you know, and he died and so we had moved and um, we were in this, I didn't particularly like the apartment we were in. I was feeling a great amount of stress trying to manage three kids. We had three kids in three different schools at this point. And at one point they were doing something and I, had, I was cutting something with this big old knife and they come into the kitchen and I'm like, I'm yelling at them And I'm holding this butcher's knife. This, I mean, not butcher's knife, but you know, the really nice three hundred dollar, you know, chopping knife. You know, Uh and I'm pointing this knife at them, and I'm in such a rage, and I just, I'm like, "Wow, you need to put this knife down." Uh And so I fling the knife into the into the sink. And to this day, the kids love to point out the bend the bend in the knife. Remember the time you 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 held a knife on us? Uh (laughs) And you know, at that moment. I was in such a rage because it was, you know, the 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 grief is always just below the surface. So anything that that, especially early on, anything that annoys you really annoys you. Yeah. Um, and you know, I wasn't even able to apologize at that point. I was so off my rocker. Yeah. But then, you know, about a couple hours later, I went back and I said, you know, I'm so sorry. Like I lost my shit back there. Sorry. Yeah. And um, and you know my oldest said yeah you scared us mom mm. you know and i started to cry um because that's the last thing i wanted to do but i had t- i was holding like i was you know yelling at my kids with a knife big old knife in my hand and i'm the adult and i'm powerful you know um all those things that come with it so i don't you know look i've had some really bad parenting moments mm. um and I want to normalize that for anybody who's listening that, you know, I, I did not go graciously into the night, into my husband's death and was able to raise these beautiful children who just love me and I love them. And we come together. <laughs> and this is not a Hollywood ending movie at all. Um, but I think that the, the thing that I did well was to keep the doors open. So not to be the emotional helicopter parent, to keep the doors open and to apologize because i be you know i just always said like we hey look new territory for me too mm-hmm. you know never done this before hopefully never will do this again
1: um you know yep it reminds me um i have not lost a spouse but i remember when my kids were babies and I love them so much. And I literally hated them at three o'clock in the morning. Yes. You know, I, and I, I remember one time being in my son's room, like looking at this baby and feeling such incredible rage that I was just so sleep deprived. And, but I had the wherewithal to think to myself, like, I'm an educated woman. I have a support system, right? I have a husband, I have family members that help me. I I can hire a babysitter occasionally. Like I have lots of things that are like supportive to me. And what about all of these people that don't? Um I get that shaken baby syndrome. I get yes. it. I want to shake this baby until he stops crying. Yes. Um and I am talking myself down from that, but but that feeling of rage um, when you just feel so out of control. Yep. It's really scary. It's a I I think, you know, most of us can relate to that, whether or not it's the death of a spouse or something. I mean, I think most moms can relate to that feeling. Um yes. but
0: and, I, and I I think there's this thing where as moms, we feel like that that amount of rage is so unhealthy. And oh my God, I almost hurt my child now. I'm a horrible mother. Like we spin it into this thing, instead of just saying, that was an intense feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And by the grace of God, Allah, Buddha, whatever, <laughs> you know, your brain, whoever it is you believe in, you were, you, we were all able to talk ourselves down at that moment. Yeah. But it does give you insight into your right. Can, I mean, I remember when my, when my son, I remember thinking, so I used to be a paramedic. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking, now, is there a way that I can bang his head against the wall where he won't die, but he'll just pass out? <laughs> that was, right. you know, I was just, cause I just need him to stop crying. I just yeah. need him to stop crying. Yeah. So I think it's, you know, really normalizing those type of feelings when you're in grief mm-hmm. or when you have a friend who's dealing with grief and your friend snaps at you, like she has never snapped at you before. That's, you know, you can't take that personally. Right. That's, that's them trying, like they are trying so hard to hold themselves together to get through another day. And it is requiring a ton of mental energy and any distraction from that mental energy, you get mad, you get angry, you get, you know, it's why women who are in labor yell at people.
1: Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So how are you taking care of yourself now, (laughs) even 11 years later, what do you do to. So I, I fell
0: apart. Um, I fell apart. I think it was around year four or five. I always have a hard time remember. And I actually became suicidal. Mm. And then I became homicidal because I thought, well, I can't leave these kids on this earth knowing you without a dad and their mother committed suicide. Um, So I lost it. I lost it. And in the process, um, I found support and I had to redo my whole. I had actually I had to put self care in place because I w- didn't have any self care at that point. Um, and, you know, I, again, I, I know I refer to kind of universal forces, but by the universal force, that same little voice that stopped me from, you know, the, the, <laughs> stabbing my the children, knife. right? Exactly, from using the knife, that same voice said, Do you realize how crazy your thinking is right now? Like that you think that you're ending your life would be better, your kids would be better off without you than with you. Like, do you understand that that's crazy thinking? And thank mm-hmm. God I did. Um, and so I had to, I, you know, I had to overhaul everything. So something that I do, um, and this is just for me, is I do meditate twice a day. Mm-hmm. I do transcendental meditation where you just focus on one word and for those of you who are thinking they can't meditate because their minds are always monkey braining, I learned that the Dalai Lama's mind monkey brains. Monkey mm-hmm. brains means it just thinks point to point to point. And that he has just gotten very good because he meditates so often at stopping the monkey brain quicker. Okay. Um, so that's that's a major thing that I do. Um, and you know, it's the I, I, I choose, instead of choosing coffee in the afternoon, I choose the 20-minute meditation. Um, I also make sure I am a connector. I'm very clear that I need to have people in my life. I need to talk to people. I need to collaborate with people. So I make an extra effort to reach out to my friends all the time. You know, I'm the one who reaches out, you know, I reach out to that friend I haven't heard for her in 20 years,
1: right? Cause I just
0: want to just, let's, let's just talk. Let's hang out and have a conversation. I may not talk to you for another 20 years, but that's okay because we have this great conversation now. So that's really important to me. And what it, what, what it does is sometimes I get in my own head of why aren't people calling me? You know, no one's, no one's commenting on my Facebook post. You know, that kind of crazy internal, like, like I said, the most important talk, my favorite topic is me. Um, so, but when I reach out to other people to just touch base with them, it gets me out of looking at my navel.
1: Mm -hmm. Right.
0: And so I'm, and then what I find is I can be in all kinds of funk, but when I reach out to someone like, you know, I'm just going to call Mandy and see how she's doing today. And when I have that simple thought that changes my, my mental attitude. Um, so I, so I do that. The other thing I do, which, which is a totally sort of off a different topic is I, I eliminated sugar from my diet because I realized not only was I sugar addict, but it was messing with my brain Mm. big time. And so I went through a process and, and this is not about willpower or anything else like that, but I was able to eliminate sugar from my diet. And that was a huge, a huge thing for me. Wow. Um, I can tell when something has sugar in it, you know, like I can go and, and all kinds of sugar. I don't do honey or maple syrup either. Cause it, it causes the exact same bodily okay. reaction. And that is, you know, I feel re- it's like an alcohol for me. Mm-hmm. I feel really good in the moment. Mm-hmm. And then I take this crash and the world is going to end and no one loves me and I'm useless. And so all those feelings come up. Yeah. Um, so I think that those are sort of the the big ones. The, the community is something that's really important, um, but it's taken a while for me to you know, get out to, to stop being so self-conscious and make sure that I reach out to people just to reach out to them. If I reach out to people because I feel the need to like be loved and cared for and, and that stuff, it, it never really, it's, it's, it's not as, it's not as satisfying as when I reach out to people, when I feel the love to be cared for, right. but I'm actually reaching out to be like, gosh, I wonder how they're doing yes. and, and, and taking that step. Right. So those, those are sort of the big things. Oh, and I walk every day. Mm-hmm. I, I, even if it's for 10 minutes, I get out and I walk. And that's another one of those mental health things that just my brain is, my brain just does. I do much better in life without sugar and taking a walk
1: every day. Um, I don't want this conversation to end because I just enjoy talking with you so much. If other people want to talk to you, how can they, how can they reach you?
0: So I am on all of, no, I'm sorry. I'm not all of them. I'm not on, I am on Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn. Okay. Um, So please reach out there. You can also check out my website at 100xoflove.com. And if you are not sure what to say or how to help your friend with cancer, you can go to 100xoflove.com. Wait two seconds, you're going to get this pop-up and you can download five phrases never to say again and what to say instead. Thank you. I've enjoyed this conversation, Mandy. I'm so glad we met. I am too. I really am.
1: Thank you so much to Kim for coming on the show and sharing so much of your story with us. Next week, we have an interesting guest. Um, You guys actually know her fairly well. It's me. I actually have a friend that's going to be interviewing me about my work, um, about Inner Harbor, about the morning meeting, how it got started, and what I do. Um, So many people have asked uh, for more information about The work of Inner Harbor, uh, the meaning behind it. So she's going to interview me and we'll talk a bit more about um, this work that I'm doing. So I hope you'll join us. I hope it's uh, interesting for you. I'm excited to be on the show. I will see you then. That's all for today. Good morning to all of you.